This week on Life and Faith. We talk about peace in our region. We have a greeting that says, peace be upon you. And we respond and be upon you as well. But it is just a greeting. We would like to see it in practice. Human beings can survive concentration camps if they have meaning. They can't survive the most affluent circumstances in the world if they have no meaning. How do we think about death and eternity and God and the human? Our lives are very fragile. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And today on Life and Faith, we're bringing you a glimpse into life in one of the world's most volatile regions from someone who's lived in many places, but calls this place in Lebanon near the Syrian border home. Essentially, I met this very lovely man and I want our listeners to meet him too. His name is Riyad Cassis, and I got to speak to him while he was on a trip to Australia recently and ask him about the ups and downs of life in the midst of kind of one crisis after another. Among many other things, Riyadh is an academic, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he's written various books, including one on frustration with God. And he works for an organisation called Langham Partnership, which supports scholars from across the developing world to get higher degrees and then go back to their home countries and make a contribution there. Now, you had this conversation with him, Natasha. I think it's going to be a good one. I really enjoyed speaking with him. He also, his wife, who wasn't with him on this trip, um, she's involved in great work as well with Syrian refugees. Um, So we'll hear a little bit about that, but I'll let him introduce both of them. Uh, I am uh, Riyad Cassis from uh, from Lebanon, born in Lebanon. And um, my name is uh, Cassis, my family name is really, does mean, uh, it's an ancient name, could mean a elder or someone who is, you know, in charge of a tribe. It's an Aramaic word, in fact, Kashish. And Riyadh, my name, means uh, nice gardens or oasis. And this is why they call the capital of Saudi Arabia Riyadh. Mm, it's the same name. Same name, yes, yeah. it is. It could be written different ways in, Ar- in English, but it is the same name in Arabic. Your wife has a meaningful name as well, doesn't she? Yeah, her name is Izdihar, which means prosperity. Mm. I mean, all Arab names would have uh, meanings to it. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you do with your time? I mean, I'm involved in many things. Uh, One of them is to support uh, faculty members and institutions to get a PhD and go back to their own countries and regions to uh, contribute to transformation of society, to do research and writing and so on, that, uh, that would be my main mm. time spending in this. But I also do some uh, writings and uh, I have few publications in several languages, including English, Arabic, French, Portuguese, uh, and maybe one or two in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. You've lived in a lot of different places. Can you give us a bit of an overview? Yes, you know, I lived in Lebanon where I was born. And then because of the civil war in Lebanon in 1975, we were refugees in Syria at that time. Uh, So we lived in Syria, in Lebanon, in the Philippines, United States, in Canada, and in Britain for extended time in these countries. 
also invested many, many places all over the place. And it's good to be here in Australia uh, <laughs> talking to you. We're glad to have you. Thank you. <laughs> Do you enjoy travel or are you a bit, you just want to be I mean, home? now after 20 years of traveling all over the place, I don't enjoy the travel itself, in fact. Mm. I had enough. But I really enjoy meeting people, uh, getting to know uh, new cultures, meeting new friends. That I enjoy very much, yes. Mm. Can I ask you a bit about what it was like to go from Lebanon to Syria? Uh, you were a teenager, I think. Did that happen all at once? Did you think you were coming back? In fact, um, the war started in 1975 in Lebanon, the civil war, and lasted for almost 17 years. Uh, after maybe one and a half years of, of war, we started seeing very bad uh, and very uh, tragic uh, death around us in the neighborhood. So my father and my mother said we should leave this country as soon as we can. Yeah, I was a teenager. I was 15, 16 at that time. And uh, our dad said, okay, let's move to Syria because he had some connections in Syria. And maybe we can come back. Of course, me and my two sisters were unhappy. We cried. We didn't want to leave school and our friends. And he said, oh, it's only for a short time maybe two weeks or three weeks, and then we can come back. Uh, that was one time we went, we didn't return. And of course, our uh, house was destroyed. Our high school became a prison after some time. So things really changed upside down uh, since then. Did you feel welcome in Syria? We did. I mean, because my dad has family in Syria, and uh, we used to go to Syria maybe uh, once a year for a few, one or two weeks. And Syria was very welcoming to Lebanese who had to flee from Lebanon during the civil war. So we did feel very much welcomed. But of course, it was not easy for us to adjust to a new educational system in school, to get to know new friends. Uh, so it was not easy, you know, to be taken out of your roots and go to another country, even if it is a neighboring country. You worked for a while for the, both the American and the Australian embassies yeah. in Damascus. Yes. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, after I graduated, I did economics at Damascus University. And I was uh, very fortunate to find a good work at the American embassy first with a USAID uh, office. So we channeled... Uh, uh, money from U.S. to Syria for vital projects like highways, hospitals, and so on. And then um, I worked at the Australian Embassy in the accounting and migration section. I really enjoyed getting to know Australia from that perspective and working for a few years at the embassy. Was there a contrast between working for the Americans and working for the Australians? Yeah, I think uh, I found... Uh, out that Australians are easygoing <laughs> and you can re be relaxed even if you are working during your working hours. Americans are more serious. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, working more with the Australians than the Americans at that time. <laughs> you have to say that. You're yeah. <laughs> talking to an Australian. <laughs> no, that was, that was my feeling at that time. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah, thank, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> It's strange to hear, you know, in 2023, 
to hear of Syria as a place receiving refugees from Lebanon, when of course the reverse has been the case for some time now. Um, and you live very close to the border with Syria, so this has been a very visible thing for you, right? Yes. I mean, of course, it is very unfortunate in, the, in our region that uh, people are becoming refugees and sometimes displaced in their own countries. So we had a Palestinian uh, refugees uh, in our history. Then we had Iraqi refugees. We had now Syrian refugees, almost two million Syrian refugees in a tiny country such as Lebanon, which has a population of not more than five million. So imagine having almost half of your population here in Australia to be refugees. Hmm. And we have our own economic crisis now. So uh, adding a burden of refugees coming to your country is, is very tough. Tough for them and tough for the Lebanese uh, population as well. It is a very sad fact that the Middle East continues to be a, an area of violence and strife and, and, and fighting. And we look forward for a day of peace, or maybe a year, or maybe years of <laughs> peace. So you are, uh, I mean, I should say that you are very fortunate here in Australia to be living in a peaceful country. And maybe sometimes you take it for granted that it is peaceful. I once was in an Australian church, I think in Sydney, and I asked how many of you have heard bullets or uh, rockets or any signs of war, uh, raise your hand. None of, of those who are present raise their hand. If you ask this question in a Lebanese church or Syrian church or Iraqi church, you'll have a very uh, different response. Can you tell me a bit about your wife Istaha's work with Syrian refugees? How did that start and what is she doing? Uh, you know, my wife uh, is a fine art artist and she really enjoys what she does. She started an organization, an NGO, by selling her own paintings. And that was the only source of income for this NGO, hmm. to help families in general. But when the Syrian war started uh, 10, 11 years ago, uh, the board and she decided to focus on helping the Syrian refugees. And the focus was on women, teenage girls, and the children. And the focus was also that to provide these women and young girls, especially now teenage girls, I would say, with education and a vocation. Many of them come from areas in Syria where girls and women are not encouraged to go to school and are not encouraged also to have a vocation. So a woman was regarded to be married at a young age and then raised children. That was, that was it. So my wife is working with, this, with, uh, with the Syrian refugees to help these young women to recognize their image, to have self-confidence in what they are doing, and that they are God's daughters God is caring for them, and they should have a profession in order to be independent when they grow up, and they should resist the temptation of getting married at a young age. I mean, when I say young age, that could be 13 years old or 14. 
I mean, imagine a woman has one or two babies at the age of 14. I mean, she really needs someone to care for her, and now she is caring for a family. Uh, so my wife is focusing on helping these refugees, hundreds of families, for the women to have a vocation. This could be in the areas of cosmetics, hairdressing, uh, sewing, stitching, but also to give them education. So they have classes to learn English even, to know arithmetic, simple accounting, to run a small business when they are able to do this. So anything that would empower these young women and uh, women who are maybe have five or six children, how to care for their families, how to, uh, to care for themselves as women. So this is the focus of her ministry. In addition of caring for babies who are uh, born in Lebanon and they need the support, it could be medical support, it could be uh, support for their mothers to care for them, especially if these mothers are teenage uh, mothers. So this is her ministry. In addition of providing medical and dental uh, help, which is very expensive to, to do in Lebanon for these refugees. Istaha's NGO is called TFF, or Together for the Family. I asked Riyad about how she came to work with these refugee families in the first place. My wife was walking in the street and she saw a, a, a boy begging, uh, a Syrian refugee, uh, with no shoes. She took him to a shoe shop, she bought shoes for him. She went to his uh, tent where he lives with his family. And uh, my wife realized that the family really needs, a, a des they are in a desperate situation and they need any kind of care. And that was also a beginning to realize how to help his mother. Uh, and the story continues. I mean, my wife was recently in the uh, earthquake hit area in Syria that was hit recently. Uh, and she noticed that uh, children are not going to school there. And she asked the children in the streets, in the ruined houses, why you don't go to school? They said, our schools are occupied by the people who were displaced due to the earthquake. So schools are not functioning. So the story continues. And my wife tried to find teachers. And now they uh, rent, you know, some shops in the streets to teach these uh, kids. So the story of my wife helping, it is very spontaneous, responding to actual needs that she sees and then developing uh, how to keep on going, meeting these needs. What's the public sentiment in Lebanon like towards you know, such a huge number of displaced people being there? But of course also Lebanon has experienced their own crises. Does that make people more sympathetic? Uh, yes, I mean to a certain degree because uh, Syrians were very hospitable to Lebanese refugees before. Now Lebanese are very were very hospitable to the Syrian refugees to come in. But the main issue is that we have a huge number of refugees and uh, the international community is not doing a good job in helping these refugees. We are in a bad economic crisis now. Uh, our banking system has failed. Even our health system is failing. 
our educational system is not progressing as it as used to be. So the refugees becoming a real burden on the country uh, nowadays. So people are looking forward for a solution for these refugees to maybe go back to Syria or to go to some countries that uh, would accept refugees to be integrated into the population. You're listening to Life and Faith, and Natasha is speaking with Old Testament scholar Riyad Cassis. As you've just heard, and as you may be aware already, his home country of Lebanon, as well as the wider region, of course, has for some time been in the grip of a succession of crises. Today marks 12 years since the beginning of the civil war in Syria. Lebanon has become a cash economy. It's the result of a four-year-old financial crisis brought about by decades of mismanagement and corruption. Buildings crumble like sand. It took only seconds to cause so much death and damage that Lebanese people are calling it their 9-11. Often our picture of this region, our perspective from the West, is of a war-torn place that's very dangerous, which obviously is based on fact as well, but is not the full experience of people who live there. Can you give us a sense of what life is like, where you live? Uh, I I think uh, one should be fair that, I mean, you hear from the news that everyone is fighting everyone in that region, and there are bombs everywhere, rockets are being fired everywhere, but this is only part of the truth. I mean, there are people living there striving to raise uh, their children, uh, their kids going to school and life. It is not as peaceful as normal as it is here in Australia, but people are trying to cope. And I think that uh, sense of being resilient, you can see it in our uh, own context, where people are ready to face any kind of unexpected circumstances, whether it is violence, uh, war, economic crisis and so on, and are really able to some degree to adjust and to overcome uh, and to have hope in the midst of these tough circumstances to keep on going. And I think by having hope, uh, hope in ourselves, hope in God, hope in community support, this is what keeps us uh, going. Uh, even in the midst of all what we have experienced in many years now. It's a lot of crisis. You know, having had the civil war before in Lebanon and then um, dealing with the economic crisis now, the the wake of the explosion that happened in 2020 and was so horrific, the Syrian war next door, the earthquake. The COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, not to mention that (laughs) little pandemic we had. How do you think we should approach times of crisis like is crisis you know there are better and there are worse and worse crises but is crisis just the normal human condition what hope do you have in the face of just so many crises one hit after another Uh, i think many crises are really 
started and continued because of human interference. I mean, the war in Syria was a war between superpowers, I would say, uh, battling on the grounds of Syria. And the war in um, Libya, the war on Yemen, now that's still going on. Unfortunately, they are a human intervention. So they are not natural disasters like earthquake or volcanoes, uh, but they are caused by, by human because of greed, because of political disagreement. And the only victims are the innocent people in these countries, which is really sad. What can be done? I think we try our best to prepare our people to be ready for the unexpected. So we are in a region where we always expect the unexpected and we unexpect the expected because things keep on changing almost every day, every hour, every week. So we, we try as much as we can to train our people to be res resilient and to be able to respond uh, with courage to changing circumstances. What difference does it make for you as a Christian and as a theologian to look around at so much crisis? I mean, it saddens me, of course, because I don't think this is the way that God wanted us as a human beings to live in a state of fear and of insecurity and, and war, uh, which is very sad. But at the same time, I keep on being hopeful for a better future. Maybe my faith is one of the main incentives for me to keep on hoping for a better future. My hope and my work is also to be a peacemaker uh, as much as I can. We talk about peace in our region. We have a greeting that says, peace be upon you. And we respond and be upon you as well but it is just a greeting. We would like to see it in practice, to live in harmony and in peace. And we, we would like this to happen among, uh, not among only Christians, but among Christians, Muslims, Jews of all faiths, to be able to live in harmony uh, and peace. And I think one of our main tasks as Christians is to be proactive in this uh, peacemaking process. And we don't need to agree with everyone, with everybody, but I think we can live in harmony and peace uh, uh, with others. What does that being proactive look like? One area would be to be involved in interfaith dialogue, to understand the, uh, the other and to respect the other. Another area is to have youth initiatives where young people from different backgrounds ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds can work together on certain projects and they can understand uh, one another and uh, build the community uh, as well. Another area is taking care of uh, creation. A few years ago, I was involved in to be one of the co-founders of a Christian environmental organization. It is one of its kind in Lebanon and in the region, I would say of the Middle East, North Africa, where we are caring for creation from a Christian uh, perspective. Uh, that means raising awareness on how to care for our environment in schools, universities, and churches, 
as well as taking good care of a wetland in Lebanon, which is one of the most strategic sites for bird migration from Africa to Europe and from Europe to Africa being, you know, in the middle of these two continents. So I think uh, also caring for creation would be another thing that would bring us together to take care of God's creation. You've written about frustration with God. Yes. Um, I'm guessing that you might yourself, <laughs> with the challenges you've had in your life, have experienced frustration with God. That seems a fair reaction sometimes, given what goes on in the world. Uh, yes, I have written, I mean, a book in English, in Arabic, and French, same book in these three languages. It was entitled Frustrated by God. Because when you see what's going on, not in just in our region, but all over the globe, in terms of war, fighting, famine, abuse, you will be frustrated. Where is God in this? And where is this going to end? And I think uh, these questions are legitimate questions to be asked by Christians and by non-Christians. But at the same time, I, I see that even if I express my frustration with God, I express this frustration to Him, I also at the same time feel that God is not responsible for these uh, things. It is we as human beings. Uh, I think God in these circumstances, He is alongside the poor. He is alongside the victims of the war. He is perhaps suffering with those who are suffering. Uh, rather than he himself causing the, the suffering. Uh, but it is us, a human being, that we really need to learn from history how we should be treating one another. Has that been your own experience of suffering, that those things have helped you, understanding that? Yes, I think, in, uh, whether in my ministry, in my life, uh, in helping uh, people that have been victims of all kinds of suffering, uh, I found that for most of them, they would find consolation and comfort that God is in the midst of uh, suffering. He did not promise us to free us from all kinds of suffering, but He promised to be with us, uh, sharing our suffering, feeling uh, perhaps with what we are feeling. And that is bringing comfort to me and to many that I work with or I serve. At the end of our conversation, I asked Riyadh if there was anything else he wanted to say to you, our listeners. And he had this lovely thing to share. I want to thank you for this conversation, but I remember something that my dad, who passed away a few years ago, told me about Australians. And I was really surprised when he said this. He said when he was a kid, during World War II, there were Australian soldiers in our region. And he said that uh, Australian soldiers were very generous with the population, so they would give sometimes uh, their uh, meat cans to the people of Syria and Lebanon at that time. And uh, I think from that time, I got that impression about the uh, generosity of Australians and then I have experienced it in so many ways. So it's really good to be talking to you 
in Australia and to Australian audience and uh, encourage you to keep on being generous to uh, in so many ways to many uh, underprivileged people of this world. Thank you. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our thanks to Riyad Cassis for sharing some of his story with us and to Langham Partnership for connecting us. And as always, thanks to our producer, the unflappable Alan Douthwaite. Yes, he really is. <laughs> Life and Faith is going to be taking a break for a few weeks. We're going to be working on some new episodes. They'll be coming in August. So we look forward to being back with you then. In the meantime, why not catch up on any episodes you missed from this term? And please do share them with people who you think might appreciate them. Uh, shout out to Mick in Parks, who listens to Life and Faith every Saturday morning on his walk and is a real promoter of the show. May there be many more of him. We'll see you next time. <laughs>